today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We continue gathering information about what's going on with this pandemic and COVID-19. And this is new to us. Of course, the virus was new uh, almost a year ago now. We started the lockdown here in Ontario. Uh, other parts of the world, of course, responded in different ways. Uh, but to find out exactly what we're dealing with and exactly how you can deal with it, you have to have the proper data. And uh, with the initial explanations and, and, and uh, investigations that were going on, there seemed to be some gaps. Uh, and one of the things that I think had a number of experts scratching their heads was uh, the initial data that was being collected seemed to indicate that the virus had less of an impact in Africa. In other words, I think in, in one particular case, they said it seemed to have skipped Africa. Well, there's been further investigation about that, and uh, Charles de Mezzo has the details. The 54-nation continent of some 1.3 billion people has barely seen the arrival of large-scale supplies of vaccines, but a variant of the virus dominant in South Africa is already posing a challenge to vaccination efforts. Health officials had breathed a sigh of relief last year when African countries did not see a huge number of COVID-19 deaths but are now reporting a jump in fatalities. Still, if doses are available, the officials say the continent should be able to vaccinate up to 40% of its population by the end of 2021 and 60% by the end of 2022. I'm Charles de Ledesma. So why the inconsistency there? Well, that's what a lot of people were asking about. Well, there's been some work done on this and some study done on this, which I think is very revealing. Here to talk with us about this is uh, Dr. Christopher Gill. Uh, Dr. Gill is an infectious disease specialist and professor of global health at Boston University. Uh, Doctor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. There's uh, one line here that uh, that jumped out at me as I was going through some of the uh, the data here uh, when we talked about the the inference that some people were giving that, hey, Africa seems to have got a pass on this. It had minimal impact there. And uh, the one line here is, uh, it's an example of absence of evidence, not evidence of absence. Uh, Maybe you could explain that to our listeners. Sure. So I I would not assume um, that most people have, have, you know, spent the last 20 years working in Africa and and therefore have sort of an understanding of of like the complexities and the challenges that are, are, you know, present in much of the continent. So let me sort of simplify that by saying that, that you know, in terms of, of sort of wealth and resources, Africa can basically be divided in two. There is South, the country of South Africa, and then there is the rest of the continent, um, at least in terms of sub-Saharan Africa. And what I mean by that is that South Africa uh, has relatively, uh, you know, uh, strong resources and wealth compared with the rest of the continent. And they are one of the, the leaders, actually, uh, globally in terms of, of uh, infectious disease surveillance and, um, in, and respiratory disease uh, epidemiology. So, and, you know, they're basically global leaders in that. And so, not surprisingly, what we've seen about COVID-19 in Africa is almost all from South Africa, right? And so the rest of the continent sort of seems like a big sort of blank slate in terms of information coming out of it. And yes, information is reported you know, maybe data come from Liberia, for example, and filter up to the John Hopkins website, which tabulates all of the numbers from around the world. But when we look at those numbers, what we're not really thinking about is what is the provenance of those data? Are, are you know, is information that comes from a passive reporting system in Liberia equivalent to information that we would see coming out of Canada? And obviously the answer is no, because Canada has tremendous resources and Liberia does not. And so we should be very skeptical when we see that there are very few numbers coming out of Africa and wonder, is that because there are actually few or is it because we're really not studying the problem in the same way as we would say here? Uh, and and that, that's actually an, an important question because we tend to take those data 
say from the Hopkins website at face value, but the information from different parts of the world are not equivalent. And, and that's sort of what we're showing in our study is that, you know, now we have an N of two, right? We have South Africa providing excellent data and we have Zambia now providing excellent data. And in, in the two instances where we actually systematically looked you know, for what is the impact of COVID-19, we found, no surprise, that it had a significant impact in terms of mortality and illness. Uh, and I, and I, I see no reason to suspect that that is not true elsewhere in Africa. You know, why should it just be a coincidence that in, in the only two places that we really looked for this, that we found it in such abundance? It just seems to be illogical to believe otherwise. How do you improve something like that? I mean, that's not a short-term answer. I get that. But uh, reporting data to make sure that you are getting information. I mean, as you say, if nobody uploaded information onto the Hopkins website, it would, it's almost like Wikipedia. If you don't put it on there, nobody's going to see it. Uh, and you don't exactly. know the validity of the stuff that actually does go on there. It's just something that somebody put up there. So uh, it's it's got to be very difficult uh, with, that, that, I guess, lack of reporting infrastructure to make sure you get accurate data. Right. I mean, I, I love your analogy of Wikipedia. I think that's, that's brilliant, in fact, because, you know, I, I have colleagues who, who are very good at promoting themselves in academia, and they have detailed Wikipedia websites. And if you Google me and go on Wikipedia looking for me, you will find absolutely nothing because <laughs> I am not uploading my data. So it's really, in a way, the same, the same issue. So if you look at, you know, those colleagues with detailed websites versus me, you would, you would conclude perhaps that there is nothing going on with me. But that's just, that's not true. I, do, I actually do a lot of things. I just don't happen to post them on Wikipedia. So, you know, it's the same, you know, issue uh, of resource allocation that is a, is a barrier to providing the kind of, or obtaining the kind of information that we would, we would need to really understand the, the impact across the African continent which, as, as you're, you mentioned in the, uh, in the preamble, is an enormous place. It's 54 countries with 1.3 billion people. I mean, it is, you know, there's, there's a lot of, of stories going on in Africa that are not being told right now. And, and when I saw some of those stories, I'm sure as, as you did too, that said, oh, it, you know, it, it, there seem to be ridiculously low numbers here in Africa, somebody should have said, well, wait a second here, that, that can't be. I mean, you know, just given the history of what's going on here, and as you say, the lack of infrastructure, uh, which I'm glad that, you know, has, uh, has obviously moved people to, to get some, some more data about this. And, and the numbers that come out of this, uh, Doctor, are, are somewhat amazing. I know it, we can skip down to the conclusions here because there's an awful lot of data here, uh, that it did have a major impact. I think that's obviously one of the conclusions we can hear here that, uh, that it did have a major impact in Africa. But the demographic here I found amazing. Uh, we look at, yeah. in North America, uh, we wisely or unwisely tend to categorize COVID-19 as, as a, 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 a 60 years and older uh you know, very, very dangerous disease. Under 60, if you don't have any pre-existing, not so much. The numbers in Africa are quite different. Yes. Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought that up because it's, it's in, in some ways the second most important finding of the paper, um, you know, the most important being that there's a lot of COVID-19 mortality, but the, the, the pattern where, you know, in which the COVID syndrome has affected the population looks fundamentally different from what we're seeing in the United States. And I, and I don't have a good explanation for that other than, you know, I, we observed that, you know, unlike the U.S. where, you know, COVID mortality rates are essentially flat, 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 flat until you hit around 55 or 60, and then it starts to really take off and become very severe above the age of 65. Well, you know, we did see that there was a relative increase in COVID mortality in the elderly, but the, the overall pattern was that it seemed to be an equal opportunity killer. And in fact, 10% of the deaths that we detected in our cohort were in children, which is just astonishing. You know, if mm -hmm. you look at the, the statistics from the U.S. 
you know, uh, you know, American Academy of Pediatrics, they are reporting in their in their you know periodic updates that the the, the proportion of COVID nineteen deaths in children is a is at most zero point two percent, not ten percent, zero point two percent. So this you know we were not expecting to see any deaths in this age range, let alone ten percent of the deaths to be in children. I don't want to speculate with my limited knowledge on what's gone on here. Uh, would it have anything to do with the, because we always are told about the pre-existing conditions can really magnify the impact COVID can have. Uh, is it the overall general health of, of the population there that might have been a factor there? It's an excellent question, and I think you're probably right. I, I don't think we can say from these data what drove those differences, but but something must account for it. In the older population, you know, we do have a little bit of, of information about the comorbidities, and there we saw a lot of a lot of the COVID nineteen uh, positive deaths were in patients who had tuberculosis, for example. I think about thirty three percent of the COVID nineteen deaths were in patients with a prior or current history of tuberculosis, and HIV AIDS was was also unsurprisingly very high on that list of comorbidities. Now, does that explain it? I, I don't know, but it, it is an interesting clue that we, you know, we think of the rest of the world as sharing the, the same set of risk factors for COVID mortality as we have. But that's not necessarily true, right? So if you go to Africa, you find that these, these other conditions are very prevalent. And so could it, is it possible that those play a role? I, I don't know. And we are, we're currently working on trying to further scrutinize those risk factor data to see if there's a significantly increased risk due to those compared with non-COVID-19 deaths, for example. But, it, but it's a tantalizing clue, and, it's, and, and in, in any case, certainly a reminder that the, you know, the spectrum of comorbidities in a place like Lusaka you know, is, is, you know, bears no resemblance to what one might see in Hamilton, Canada. And, and with that in mind, I mean, there's a protocol that we've been told to follow, and I'd like to think most of us are doing this uh, you know, as, as individuals. You know, that's the masking, the social distancing, hand washing, et cetera, like that. Uh, were those protocols followed in, in the areas with, that were studied in Africa? Not really. Um, I mean, I don't know about South Africa. I, I, I would expect that their compliance with mask, masking and social distancing is probably quite high. But in Lusaka, we didn't see a lot of mask wearing during these these three months of surveillance and social distancing, you know, particularly in the places where the, the COVID mortality was concentrated would be very, very difficult to do because these are very crowded, you know, densely uh, populated parts of the city. So you really think like how in the world could one try to, you know, maintain six foot distance when you're just in this sort of constant uh, sea of individuals? <sighs> It's, it's, yeah, because obviously, you know, we told about the impact it can have, and we've had the spikes here in North America where we see non-compliance, and I'm just wondering if this was a, a perfect storm of things that were just not happening, in other words, to put them in a more precarious situation. Well, I want to be very sympathetic, because I, oh, I don't yeah. think we can really call it uh, non-compliance per se, because there was really nowhere to buy the masks. So it was, I mean, I suppose one could make them uh, oneself, but that would be about the only way of obtaining a, a face mask. And then the, the you know, the sheer crowding, the density of the population would make, mm -hmm. you know, attempts to socially space uh, almost impossible. I mean, you could say, I'm going to do it, but, but how do you do that? I mean, are you sort of running back and forth across the street trying to avoid people? It just seems almost impractical. Yeah, and that, that was the inference I was going. It's not that, hey, I, I refuse to do that. It's, hey, A, I don't know how to do that, or B, I don't have the material to be able to do that. Right. And, and in any case, you know, the, the primary risk due to person-to-person -person spread is probably occurring indoors. And, and there you, you know, you know, a typical Zambian household in one of these poor communities, 
is going to be multi-generational where you have like, you know, six to 10 people living in mm-hmm. a 20 by 20 foot, you know, cinder block house. So like very crowded. So you can see that that is exactly the kind of environment that COVID-19 would be happily, you know, would be happy to spread in. Let me, Doctor, if I can, just tie this into to what we're facing right now, and that's the the vaccination rollout uh, globally mm-hmm. as well. And and I think there's a consensus now, and I know President Biden's talked about this, and we certainly have talked about it in this country as well, that we're not going to knock this virus down until we make sure that everybody, including third world countries, Africa, Asian countries, they have to be included in this. Even if they can't afford it, we've got to make sure that gets there. How do you yeah. roll out a program like that, uh, given some of the, the the challenges that are existing there now? Yeah, it's exceptionally difficult, what you're describing, um, particularly with, uh, I think, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine, where they have these, you know, very restrictive supply chain requirements. You know, the Pfizer vaccine requiring minus 80 degrees Fahrenheit or 90 degrees Fahrenheit. I mean, that you really sort of scratch your head and, and, and wonder, how is that even possible in a situation, you know, in a, in a setting like that? But so it, it, that, that kind of makes me think that there's you know, to solve this problem in terms of vaccinating places like Africa, and it's not just Africa, but, you know, South Asia would also have much the yeah. same challenges to it, that we're, we're really looking for a vaccine that would be a lot more forgiving in terms of logistics. And so fortunately, we have, you know, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which can be basically dealt with like most routine vaccines can, um, or the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is the same sort of much simplified supply chain logistics. Uh, and then there's the Chinese vaccines and the uh, already licensed Sputnik vaccine from Russia, which are also much easier to manage. So I, my, my guess is that the solution in a place like Lusaka is not going to be Pfizer or Moderna's vaccines, but it's going to be one of the other uh, companies. Uh, and I, I hope that there's a, you know, there's, there are plans for technology transfer so that the very robust manufacturing capacity for vaccines in India could be leveraged to sort of you know, rapidly ramp up uh, uh, manufacturing and distribution. Well, they obviously are working on that. And just as you and I were talking here, I just got a quick headline on my TV here in my, my home office uh, that Pfizer has modified their uh, their uh, restrictions about the temperature. So I, I, I don't have details on it. All we get is the headline across the bottom of the screen. So uh, that's possibility is some good news there. And that could only help, couldn't it? God, we, we, we need some hope here. Exactly. Uh, fascinating study. Uh, great to get your perspective and your expertise on this, Doctor. Thank you so much for the time today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to talk about our work. We really appreciate okay. it. Okay. Stay in touch. Thank you so much. Sure. Dr. Christopher sure. Gill from uh, Boston University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.